Lord, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that in him and through him we have life. We pray, Lord, this would really hit home today. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, by asking you all a question. Uh, It's something that I've been asked before, uh, and it's perhaps something that you may have been asked yourself. But I want to ask you this question. If you were to die today, and you were to front up to the gates of heaven, and let's just say there's a man standing there, and he asks you, why should I let you in? What would you say to him? Now, I suspect uh, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, uh, you'd probably know the kind of recorded answer for this question. Well, it's, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is my ticket to heaven. He's the reason to let me in. But then my next question is, well, do you believe this? Do you actually believe this? Because, you see, I think the Christian life, it's one where when we hear this question, why should I be led into heaven? Our, our instinct, despite knowing the correct answer, our instinct is to kind of slide one of two directions. Uh, we either slide in the one direction and we say, well, look, yeah, I believed in God and I did all the right things. You know, look, I went to a church. I even went to this church, believe it or not, that got me to read the whole Bible in two years. And I managed to pull that one off. And I prayed a lot. Is anything else you want to know? Well, if this is you, uh, as much as I hate to admit it, I tend to lean this direction, uh, today's passage speaks into that self-confidence uh, and it pops that bubble. Today's passage, it reminds us that all have sinned and all fall short of the perfection that God requires for us to be saved. For others of you, you might lean the other direction, right? You might not be ready for this exam, You might be here today, Uh, you may have parked your car out the back and sat in the driver's seat for half a second, taken that deep breath, and put on the Christian smile as you open the door, ready to greet everyone the way we should. Maybe for you the, the whole church thing just isn't your usual habit. Maybe you feel uncomfortable even being here. Uh, Perhaps you've been here for a while and you still feel that way. Perhaps some of you have avoided church for so long or avoided Christianity for so long. Maybe you have a history of of, of laughing at your Christian friends for the silliness of their faith and now all of a sudden here you are. And perhaps this guilt, it, it weighs you down a bit. Perhaps this guilt leads you to doing a little bit here and there in the hopes that when you front up to the pearly gates that you'll have tipped the scales of justice just enough in the right direction to be welcomed in. Well, if this is you... It's great to have you along, Uh, but you've also come on the right week because this passage we're about to look at speaks into this as well. It speaks into those feelings of guilt and inadequacy, and it offers genuine relief. Because today you're going to see that, that getting right with God, it's a free gift, It has nothing to do with what you contribute, uh, nothing to do with what your your checkered history with Christianity may look like. Now, this passage in Romans 3, 21 to 31, it's arguably one of the most important passages in the whole Bible because it speaks into everybody's situation, wherever you're at. It declares from the mountaintops that, that you are right with God, that you're saved from his coming judgment because of the free gift of righteousness. Now, being a gift, naturally, this isn't something that you earn. 
which means there's no place for pride, there's no place for boasting and, and kind of showing off your resume or your achievements. Nor is it something that leaves us wondering whether or not we're saved. Now, this free gift, it's something God gives, and it's something which essentially brings forward his final judgment on your life into the here and now. It provides eternal security, provides assurance and comfort, and all you have to do is sit there like little children and accept it. Now, in order for uh, any of us to begin understanding this, the place to start, uh, which is the place we've been over the last couple of weeks, is to remember where we've come from, right? To remember your utter helplessness without this free gift from God. And so if you're following along in your outlines, uh, I'm beginning at point one here. Uh, The first point, no one is right with God. So far uh, in Romans, if you remember the last few weeks, Paul has been pretty relentless in his uh, assessment of the human race. Uh, it's been quite uh, depressing at points even. He's made clear, for example, in Romans 1.18 that we are experts at suppressing the truth about God, right? That, that we know he exists, uh, but instead of giving him the honour and the thanks that he deserves, we instead decided to cover our ears, decided to shut our eyes and sing along to ourselves, la, 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 pretending like he didn't exist. And the end result for the world, is that some of us actually end up believing this. We've also seen in 2 verse 1 that that there are those who are self-righteous and may also sit under God's judgment. Those that that think they're right with God on the basis of perhaps their morality, their, their track record of doing good deeds. But then Paul goes on and says, well, they judge those around them while hypocritically practicing the very things they say not to do. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we were to write down every time that we had told someone how they should or shouldn't live their lives and compare that with our own lives, you know too very well that you would fall far short even of your own standards. We've also seen in 320 that, that even the super religious can't make it right with God. Those who, who strive to live God's way, who, who know what God requires, they know God's law, right? It's been given to them. But the end result, Paul says, is the opposite of this, that that the law came in and what happened? Well, we had a greater knowledge of our sin. What happened? Well, we had every mouth shut and every person held accountable for not living up to the perfect standard that God requires. And that's basically where we left off last week. No one is righteous. No one deserves to get to heaven. None of you deserve to get to heaven. Now, this is an awkward uh, and scary reality. The fact that even our best efforts at getting there, even our best efforts fall short of the mark, we're left with very few options, humanly speaking, to kind of solve this conundrum. Uh, And I think we have a few solutions in our own minds to get around this. So we either get crushed by the weight of it all, Our guilt just piles higher and higher and higher until we realise there's just no point even in trying to live a godly life. Or two, we lower the bar, we we change the rules, we change what we think God's expectations should be of us and then arrogantly boast when when we've changed the rules to the equivalent of a a baby's puzzle, you know those four-piece puzzles that you kind of clip together? 
when God's requirements are the equivalent of, of an impossible puzzle, you know, with those extra pieces and the jagged edges, and then you've got to do about 10,000 of them in a row. But there is a third option. And the third option is to look squarely at the truth, to acknowledge your need of outside help, to acknowledge your need for God to provide a way for you to be right with him because you can't do this on your own, to acknowledge your need of a saviour. But amazingly, this is the very thing that God provides for us. So point two, no one is right with God, but now in Jesus, God provides a way for us to be right with him. And this is where uh, the Bible passage we read today, this is where we launch off. Uh, This is where the book of Romans, in essence, takes a massive an exciting turn. Uh, it's a little bit crass, but some people call this the big but of the Bible, right? Because, because the word but, it signals a huge change of direction. So we've been heading straight down one direction, but God does something amazing. He himself turns that around. After explaining that, that perfect righteousness has always been his requirement, God turns around and he says, well, look, I'm not going to lower the bar for you. I'm not going to make things easier. I'm not going to change the rules, and I know you can't make it. So instead, I'm going to supply a righteousness for you. I'm going to gift a righteousness to you, all wrapped up in a nice little package through Jesus. You see, just as the reality of his burning wrath against us hits home, just as we begin feeling the heat of the fires of hell licking against our mortal bodies, God turns around... And he says, I'm going to take this bullet for you. Now, the passage we have today, Paul explains this. He unpacks this. He he tells us how this incredible news works for us. So firstly, if you look down at verse 24, Paul says that we have been justified. It's a big word. Uh, It's a word that simply means made right. Uh, In fact, when you read the word uh, righteous uh, and just in the passage, in the original language, they're basically the same word. They're interchangeable. Paul says here, we have been justified or made right with God. Uh, In essence, the the root of this word is a legal term, which means that, that we've been made right before the judge. We've been forgiven and cleared of any wrongdoing that we've done. And in this case, uh, it's ultimate because we're now right with God himself, right? It's as if we had never sinned. God looks down at us and he sees nothing worthy of his wrath. Now, the real question is, well, how can that be, right? Hasn't Paul just spent three and a half chapters harping on and on and on saying just the opposite? Well, Paul continues in verse 24 and says, We're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So the reason we are seen as righteous in God's sight is because Jesus has redeemed us, right? He's he's purchased us. Uh, This is language which which speaks of someone who has a heavy debt and so they, they sell themselves into slavery, And it perhaps would take an entire lifetime, if not two, to be able to buy yourself back out of slavery. And the idea here in Romans 3 is that that we are slaves to sin and death. We are stuck under sin and death. We had a debt that was far too great for us to pay off, even in a million lifetimes. 
So God took it upon himself to buy us back out of slavery. He paid the price to redeem us through the blood of Jesus. So we've been justified. We've been redeemed. But there's one more thing that needs to happen. God's wrath, which was revealed against all unrighteousness, this had to be dealt with. This had to be poured out. God couldn't just uh, forget about sin and evil. Uh, God can't just turn a blind eye to evil. If he did this, uh, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be righteous. If, if you turn a blind eye to evil against a good friend or a spouse, it wouldn't be righteous of you to just sit back and kind of go, meh, it's all good. But God is the ultimate in righteousness. He can't turn a blind eye to sin. So what does he do? He pours out his wrath on himself. He took the bullet of his own wrath through Jesus. Read verse 25 with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. It's a funny set of words. Uh, we don't often use, use the idea of sacrifice of atonement. I, in fact, I don't know the last time anyone ever said that to my face. Uh, it's a funny phrase, and it stems all the way back to Old Testament times. Uh, we had a, a series in Leviticus last year, so if you've been hanging around for a while, um, we had an entire sermon on Leviticus 16, which is the famous chapter on the Day of Atonement. Uh, atonement, it's, it's this idea which stems from the Old Testament sacrificial system, so you'd be forgiven for thinking that it does sound a little bit strange, but it's a ritual where basically the, the blood of animals was used to wipe away the sins of Israel. And Paul, here in Romans 3, he latches onto the same word to explain how we can be made right with God. In fact, if, if you remember in the reading back to verse 21, Paul talks about the law and the prophets, like all this Old Testament stuff, testifying to the means that God uses to save us. So we haven't just done away with the sacrificial system. Uh, in fact, it's been ratcheted up a few notches because the sacrificial system is met in Jesus. So we see an example of this in verse 25, and Paul uses this word to say that there was this sacrifice of atonement for the forgiveness of sins, a turning away of God's wrath through Christ. Now, for some of you, you might have different Bible translations with you. Uh, some of you might see a different word here in place of the three-word sacrifice of atonement. Uh, you'd see the word propitiation. Now, this is a big uh, word. I'm not going to get you uh, to memorise it. Um, extra points if you can use it over dinner after church. It's a big word, uh, and it's a great word in this context because propitiation captures both the idea that sin has been taken away, which is what atonement kind of covers, and it has the idea of God's wrath as well being turned aside. The wrath of God, which was revealed against all godlessness and unrighteousness back in 1.18. So propitiation, it's a word that addresses how God deals with his righteous anger at our sin. And that's what Paul's trying to convey here in verse 25. It's not just a forgiveness of sins, it's also a turning aside of his wrath. 
So the idea here in 325 is that God's wrath has been turned aside, being poured out on Jesus. He took the penalty for our sin that couldn't be just forgotten. He was the atoning sacrifice. His blood was shed to turn God's wrath away from you. I'm going to grace you with an illustration here. This is just a commentary, but it's a big red book and it looks kind of intimidating, so I thought it works for this. Here's an easy way to understand this. Consider this book a record of all the sins that you have ever committed. And it's heavy. It's weighing you down. This book, deserves, deserving of full wrath from God upon you, has now been transferred to Jesus' account. Right? That's the first half of the picture here. He took the penalty that you deserved. Your sins were laid onto him, and now you are free. And what this does is it shows us that, that God, he doesn't just change the rules. He doesn't shift the goalposts or, or lower the bar in any sense. He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug. He is good and righteous, and his character demands that a payment be made. Otherwise, he ceases to be a righteous God. And so his requirement then for us to stand before him is, and always will be, perfect obedience to the law. But the good news is that, that Jesus, uh, just as our debt had been transferred to Jesus' account, the list of righteousness from Jesus has been transferred to our account. And so with this dual transaction, God demonstrates that even today, he takes sin as seriously as he always has. But more than this, it shows us that he is just as committed to saving us from this sin. And this is the good news that we've been waiting for. This is the good news the whole world needs to hear. Now, the question is, how exactly then do we receive this righteousness? You'll know that we we think some are saved and some aren't saved. And so this is an important question. Well, if you were to skim through today's passage, uh, you'd see a heavy emphasis on this idea of faith or belief. So verse 22, we see the righteousness is for all those who believe. Verse 25, the atonement is to be received by faith. Again, in verse 26, that God is the uh, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27 even talks about the law of faith. Verse 28, uh, we are being justified by faith. And verse 30 says the same thing. This idea of faith, it is absolutely littered throughout this passage. But the question is, well, does this mean we have to have a strong, unshakable faith in order to be saved? Well, the answer, I suspect, might come as a surprise to some of you because the answer is no. In fact, by now, I'm hoping that it is crystal clear to all of us that the only way to be saved is through Jesus. He is the one who saves us and him alone. But what this means then for faith is that faith is merely uh, the instrument to receive that salvation. It's like like your parent has has a lolly for you, right? You know they're going to give it to you. All you need to do is walk up and say, Daddy, do you have the lolly in, in trust? And he'll give it to you. You don't need to do anything to receive it except hold your hands out in anticipation. In other words, it's not how much faith you have that saves you. 
It's what you have your faith in. You see, our faith is simply the way we receive the benefits of God's completed work in Jesus already. Right? It's how we receive the free gift of righteousness, as verse 24 puts it. And it wouldn't be free if it cost us something and we had to do something for it. It wouldn't be free if I thought my faith had any part in earning my salvation. Now, this matters because you might be sitting here today uh, tempted to think that you need to work harder at having faith. Uh, Some of you I know, and and this is a season in many people's lives, you feel a bit dry in your Christian walk. Some of you perhaps even feel a bit distant from God. Well, if this is you, I want to assure you that it's not the strength of your faith or, or the genuineness of your convictions which really matters when it comes to your salvation. Rather, it's what, or in this case, who you have your faith in. A good way to, to think about this is you, you might have an, an unshakable faith, right? You want to go visit the Tings in Taiwan. You might have an unshakable faith that strapping a whole bunch of feathers to your arms and your face and your body and putting a crest on your head, whatever it is, to jump off a building and fly all the way over to, to, to Taipei. But if you did that, I, I could tell you now that you'd have your faith in all the wrong places, no matter how strong or convicted you are of it. Likewise, you you might barely have enough faith to board a Boeing 787 to Taipei. Uh, Believe me, I'm not a turbulence kind of guy. Uh, I am terrified of takeoff and landing on any kind of plane. But even a weak, shaky faith in the right object will be the thing that gets the job done. As Christians, our faith is not something we contribute to our salvation Rather, it's a simple trust that Jesus has done it all for us. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I made the mistake of saying he wrote a little bit on Romans this morning. Uh, He didn't write a little bit. Look up his commentaries on Romans and you will see it fills an entire bookshelf, essentially. He had this to say about saving faith. He said, The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. The more we think about this, the more we dwell on this amazing fact that, that in Jesus, salvation has been accomplished on our behalf, that God's perfect requirements have been upheld, that his wrath dealt with, and salvation freely merited and credited to our account, the more we understand this, the less room there is for us to boast or to be prideful. The more we understand this, the more assured we can be that we are forgiven the more we can rid ourselves of guilt and those niggling doubts that we're not good enough for God. In fact, for those of you feeling guilty, uh, potentially about being here today, uh, maybe about past sins of yours that, that you just can't get over, maybe you feel like a fraud or anything to that effect, there's no need for any of this because the more you see your faults and your failures in light of Christ, the more precious His love should appear to you. 
Uh, For those who have been a Christian your whole life, uh, perhaps a pretty good one by uh, the world standards. You know, you might have a long list of things that you do. You know, you don't jaywalk, you don't smoke or lie much. You live a pretty good moral life, pretty upright life. All the people around you compliment you for kind of how different you are to the rest of the world. Well, the gospel should humble you because it reminds you that your salvation doesn't rest on you and what you've done. It rests entirely on something outside of your achievements and efforts. And what great news this is. The gospel, in essence, to boil it down, it is righteousness received. Not earned, not deserved. And so my question to you is, are you right with God? If you were to die today and front up to the gates of heaven and there's a man standing there, And he asks you, why should I let you in? What would you say to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our undeserved salvation through Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't lower his standards. Uh, but instead proves yourself to be holy, just, and righteous. A God who knew that we couldn't live up to your holy standards, but dealt with this problem by taking the penalty that we deserved in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that as a result, you gave us his record of righteousness so that on that last day, you don't see us and our faults and our failures. You see your son and declare, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.